constructive, positive attitude or enthusiastic attitude really makes a difference for them. So. Consider your current scope of responsibilities and make sure that you are doing everything you can to make that uh, just very best delivery as possible. Creating this dynamic of parents saying we're not getting what we're paying at the same time, we are investing more and more and more. Welcome to ISS EDU Learn Ask Me Anything with Mike and Dana. Here we'll be exploring how international schools are innovating and transforming education around the world. From the latest trends and insights to stories from teachers and administrators, you'll get the inside look to the global education landscape. So join us as we explore what the future of international education has in store. Get ready to be inspired, challenge the status quo, and embrace a world of possibilities. Welcome back to ISS EDU Learn, Ask Me Anything with Mike and Dana, where we bring together experts and thought leaders from around the world to share insights and ideas to help you improve education experience for students, teachers, administrators, and parents alike. I am Mike P., your favorite educator interviewer, and I'm with Dr. Dana Specker-Watts, the Director of Learning Research and Outreach at ISS. Dana, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, how about you, Mike? I'm doing the same way you are, Dana. Very usual. <laughs> And before we get started today, just a few housekeeping items. Don't forget to hit the like and subscribe and leave us a review. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Spotify. Also, don't forget to visit our website on iss.edu slash events to see all the upcoming events that we have coming up that has to do with professional development. And also, don't forget to check out our job fairs. They're happening virtual and also in person. And here on our latest episode, we are honored to be here with Daniel Wigner, the founder of Identity-Centered Learning, ICL, a platform dedicated to empowering learners to explore and embrace their identities while gaining respects for identities of others. Daniel is a leading expert in the field of identity inclusion and has worked with educational institutions worldwide to create environments that foster healthy identity development. Throughout his career, Daniel has been passionate about creating positive change and building equity in education. He has served as a teacher, curriculum developer, and a consultant for organizations such as Teach for America and New York City Department of Education. Daniel has worked exclusively on issues of identity, including a co-authoring book, Identity Safe Classrooms, Place to Belong and Learn. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Daniel Wickner. Daniel, how are you? Good. Thanks, Mike. Just the last, the, the tail end of that intro actually was not, not accurate. I haven't uh, worked with Teach for America or written that book. So I don't know where that uh, popped up. LinkedIn. So, Maybe. but I'll, okay. Okay. Yeah. I can't claim the tail end of that bio. I'd like to be a published author at one point, but <laughs> the guy oh, even the book right. is not yours. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Understood. We can fix that. Hey, you know, it's funny though, is like, I would believe that in two seconds flat because if you're not an author yet, you probably have that on your horizon, you know, because you are so good. <laughs> well, this is what happens when you write an intro at two o'clock in the morning, but you <laughs> teach ICL, right? So my questions here are still based on ICL. So let's get yeah, started. No, I think the questions I'm sure will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get started. And uh, if you could just tell us a little bit more about ICL, identity-centered learning, and how it helped learners to explore their identities. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that anything that I profess and that I want to share with everybody is anything new. It's really standing on the shoulders of giants. It's standing on the shoulders of Kimberly Crenshaw. It's standing on the shoulders of Samia Lean. 
and Django Paris. It's standing on the shoulders of a lot of really impactful thinkers around culturally responsive learning, culturally relevant uh, teaching, all of these ideas which have been swirling around for a while and have been implemented to various extents, but uh, I feel like haven't quite made their way into international schools to the extent that I think is necessary. And as I'm somebody who works primarily and has worked and taught only in international schools, that's kind of the place where I wanted, and I feel like is a real, I guess, important substrate for identity development, especially given the fact that so many students, I would claim all international school students have challenging identity journeys, meaning that who they are isn't a very simple answer in any way, very much because of the multicultural, multilingual, multinational environments that they inhabit, that international school environments are. But I remember being kind of surprised when I started to teach in international schools at how little identity and identity development was talked about. Of course, it was talked about later where we talk about third culture kids or students who have a third culture kid experience and then later on in life have challenges explaining who they are to others or grappling with the complexities of, of their upbringing. But I got the feeling that that was sort of masked and that was kind of, that wasn't really focused on in the teaching and learning. And the teaching and learning was very much sort of taken from, in the case of many schools that I've taught at the United States and really brought over and plopped down. And it wasn't really adapted and transformed for students, by students, in support of their complex identity development journeys. And so I feel like a lot of my work comes from my own experiences, dealing with my own identity challenges, ongoing identity challenges, growing up in the United States and being biracial, being multicultural, starting multilingual, then becoming monolingual, and then trying to become multilingual again. But then also the challenges, the similar challenges that I see in different contexts around the world at international schools. And so for me, identity-centered learning is really just a collection of practices and perspectives and ideas that are all centered or framed with the goal of supporting identity development. So anything that empowers a child or student or person to take control of understanding, establishing, and disclosing and sharing their own identity, whatever it might be, whatever part of it might be, I would consider a part of identity-centered learning. I don't lay claim to those practices, but I support those practices. And so I feel like a lot of the work that I do is around realizing, oh, these things that we've always done are either really identity-affirming practices or not. And depending on that, really making a choice of whether we should continue using them or stop using them. And so I would kind of make the case that all great teaching sort of in my opinion, is identity affirming and that there's an identity affirming reason why a practice is successful and why it's a great teaching practice. So to really claw, like, and to really dig away at all the fluff and look at the core, which is, in my opinion, the idea at the center of identity-centered learning, which is that education is the process of identity development, that what we're doing in schools, what we're doing in terms of learning is we're establishing bit by bit who we are. And if we look at education through that lens, then it really makes us realize what we're doing well and question what, why we do other things that we probably shouldn't. And Daniel, you'd think that of all places, of all institutions that exist, an international school would be like prime for this work, right? And we should be doing it well. 
but we know we haven't been doing it well. So do you think that this is the entry level in, but it's just going to spread, right? So, okay, yes, international schools are prime for this work, but then it should actually trickle into all schools everywhere. But the schools that should be able to adapt it first really should be our schools, but yet they're reticent or maybe still not ready. I know they're ready for the work, but they're not engaging in the work. Am I correct on that? Now, I can't speak for all international schools. I can only speak for my experiences in my conversations with other educators around the world and what I've seen in the institutions that I've worked in. I would agree, yeah, there's, there's that ripe, there's just so much potential there. And based on work inside classrooms with students in international schools, students are so ready. I would claim that all students are ready because it's not a question of how ready you are for identity development, right? That's something that we're doing, whether we realize it or not. The question is, how much are we acknowledging what we're doing? So in my opinion, education is identity development, but there's identity development happening all the time. It's just not always healthy if we're not aware of it and we're not supporting it. And so I would say that there's a lot of practices that are, I guess, sort of traditional education practices, many of which are not really healthy for identity development, whether it's you know developing a sense of competency a sense of, of ownership over what we're learning. Even something as simple as during math, during math class, feeling like a mathematician, feeling like somebody who can do this, somebody who is, instead of just doing math, somebody who is a mathematician. And I think that there's a lot of practices that have sort of made their way into schools that I think are very helpful. One major shift that you know the Reading and Writing Project from Teachers College did was really moving from we're doing reading and we're doing writing to we are readers, we are writers. This idea of identity language that we are becoming something and giving students a way to inhabit that identity and giving them an entry point to being, I am a writer, I am an author, and this is how I'm going to be an author, as opposed to I do writing during this time of the day, inhabiting that role. So I feel like it's something that I wouldn't say it's exclusive to schools in some place or another place. I would say that given the expectations that I had when I first discovered the existence of international schools, being somebody who is international, but didn't know about international schools, and the potential that I just saw when I first realized that this thing exists, and just the jealousy that I felt being of, of students who get to grow up in an environment surrounded by so many people who are from many different places and where diversity, at least on the surface, seems to be celebrated. I think really hoping for more, hoping that that diversity is more than just, you know, celebrated on the surface, that it's really, really examined and that it's really, I guess, it's really developed. That diversity, you can look at diversity on the surface, but if you don't dig deeper in terms of what makes us really different and similar to each other on a very, very deep level, then I feel like it's a missed opportunity. Uh, Daniel, how many identities do you think is out there? So I guess in my presentation, I, I shared this diagram, the dimensions of identity. So it's just this, the idea being that for every identity aspect, every single way that we can finish the sentence, you know, I am or I identify as, that is an aspect of who we are. So it's not you know, up to me to necessarily decide what's an identity, what's not. But at the same time, I do believe that every single identity is, has multiple you know, dimensions to it, that every aspect of who we are also has a journey. Every journey that we have also has a bunch of perspectives on that journey. So I would say infinite. 
It's okay with such an infinite. I just was looking for a number and I want to ask the next question, uh, which would be then with such an infinite number of identities, how do you ensure that all backgrounds are fully included and represented in the learning process? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Mike. I think that I wouldn't say it's necessarily about like making sure that every every little possibility is there. It's about the direction that we're going in. And so I find, you know, you step into every classroom space, you step into every institution. And the question is, is this, ex is this institution, is it static in terms of how it's being inclusive or is it expanding? Is this exclusiveness expanding? Is this balloon expanding? And, you know, we know that the number of different ways that people can identify the diversity of our world in many ways is expanding as, as different movements, things under, are uncovered. The question to me is not about where are we necessarily right now? It's what direction we're going and how we're doing the work each day. So I guess in terms to, to sort of answer your question, how do you make sure you can't, I, in my opinion, fully, the mm -hmm. only solution is to constantly be questioning and re-questioning what we do and how we are creating every single aspect of a learning experience and environment for students so that every single day is more inclusive than the last. And I think that's, obviously we can go faster, we can go slower, but I would say the direction is really important. I think once people feel like they've just been inclusive enough, then I feel like we've lost. I love that. If I could add just one more thing, I would also say that it really very much depends on what you have in front of you. I think that the, the low-hanging fruit very much is what you have in, the, in your classroom, in your institution. It should reflect the students that you have, but it shouldn't stop there. I think that there's a lot of institutions that can do a lot better job of being more inclusive, understanding, and providing empowerment for identity development of the students that are right in front of them. But obviously, you want to provide inclusiveness for students and identities that, at least on the surface, don't yet exist in your institution. That's super excellent thoughts and definitely things that kind of segue into a question that I was considering when you were talking about like examining diversity, kind of digging deeper into just like you said, the low hanging fruit in your classroom, what's in front of you. How would you suggest holding these conversations around what people might consider sensitive topics like race, gender, sexuality in the classroom and in the institution overall? As an educational professional, you likely understand the positive and crucial role inclusion has on classroom culture. And you might be on the lookout for a community of like-minded educators. Senya International is that community. Senya is a nonprofit organization that advocates for individuals with disabilities and promotes inclusive educational practices across the globe. With a network of educators, families, students, and professionals, Senya offers connection, professional learning, and support for educators like you. Connect with the Senya community via our membership program or a local chapter in your area. Enjoy professional learning with the Senya community via our podcasts, online certification program, and in-person or virtual conferences. Support Senya through our sponsorships, awards, and scholarship program. So, what are you waiting for? For more information, head to our website, senyainternational.org. That's S-E-N-I-A international.org. And together, we continue to make a difference and fulfill our vision of living in an inclusive world. Yeah, and I think that that's the major barrier for a lot of, a lot of people.
And I think that very often we as educators stand in the way of students who are ready for these conversations. And in general, I wouldn't say that me as an educator, that I'm responsible for driving the conversations. I feel like what I look to use my power to do is to create an environment, an environment where, so this kind of gets into this four aspects of identity-centered learning, one of which being how we create environments. The environment being, what does this space look like? How do we actually do what we do on a daily basis? How is identity language just part of, in the air? How is identity just sort of talked about? How is it respected on a daily, minutely basis in how we talk to each other, not necessarily about identity? You know, I feel like there's kind of this idea that in order to address topics around identity, we have to say, okay, kids, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about identity today. We're going to talk about race today. And to me, that's not how these conversations come about. In, they don't come about that way in reality. I don't think that that's a really helpful way to bring them about. Rather, I think it's better to have environments that are set up, prepared for those sparks to happen. And when those sparks come up, then everybody's ready to have a meaningful conversation around that, where there's certain foundational ideas about respect that are built into the classroom environment, that there's a lot of background knowledge that's been built up through a lot of the projects and a lot of the reading that we've done, examples where we can bring that to the fore when we do talk about things that could be seen as sensitive. I would also say that, there's, that it's really important for students to have constant opportunities to really low stakes opportunities to do identity work. I think there's kind of a misconception that we need to do a big identity project and stick it up on the wall and really put it out there. But a lot of students, especially for aspects of their identities that are kind of developing, that are kind of nascent, they aren't ready to put that out there. As a kid, I wouldn't want to put these parts, the parts of my identity that I really needed to talk about. I, didn't, I wasn't ready to put those up and, and to share them with the world, but maybe I was ready to do a little something with it you know, in my own space, in my own time, on my own timeline. And so thinking about how can we talk about identity in a really low stakes, really sort of casual way and just have it be there in the room with us all the time. I use identity webs, something I learned from Sarah Ahmed, who's the author of um, Be the Change. Just something that you have in the room that you're constantly adding to, oh, stick that in your identity web. Oh, you don't want to? Okay, fine. You know, or, you know, share your identity web, learn something from someone else that you might want to add to your web. And then we can use that web for creating math story problems. Use your web for writing ideas. Use your web for your next social studies project or, but, or not. It's just there. And then as soon as it's part of the fabric of the classroom, then when we do a unit of, on biographies, you see the biographies that students choose. Who are they choosing? What's important to them? Oh, they're choosing Rosa Parks. They're choosing Nelson Mandela. And then they start to talk about these things, but they have all of that foundational idea around ideas around identity. And so they can relate, even though these figures are very far away from their reality, that they can bring it into their, into their reality and have meaningful conversations. So I get the feeling that sometimes it can seem really daunting because we build it up to be this really daunting task. But my hope with identity-centered learning is for everyone to see daily work that we do, little things that we do, every single assignment as having a connection to identity, not because it needs to be connected to one of the more, I guess, sensitive, quote unquote, aspects of identity, but because everything that we do in a school should be connected to developing a part of who we are. And once we see it that way, then I feel like it lowers the stakes a little bit. And I think for kids, they appreciate that. Daniel, I wanted to do a quick follow-up with that one because, so I'm wondering at what age do we start helping kids also learn who they can identify with? So 
just quick anecdotal, right? I was always a writer and English major, but I didn't even understand, I think, the value of the female voice until grad school. I don't know if I was introduced to female authors other than I think Helen Keller is the only female author I read K through 12. Uh, and so, and Judy Bloom, but that was definitely not a school topic. That was something I read on my own. But I'm wondering, like, so I don't know if I had been asked in grade four or, you know, even in middle school or high school, what authors do I identify with? If I would have known that there were so many amazing female voices out there to identify with. So how do we do that in an elementary or middle and high school where it's safe and inclusive and we're not, we don't end up being accused of which I don't even care if we are, but from parent communities that were too woke or we're trying to push an agenda that's outside, like we just are trying to help students understand who they are without pushing them into a narrative that they might think is not appropriate. Yeah, obviously I I can understand the concerns that can be around pushing, right? But I don't think it's something that needs to be pushed because I think it's really natural. It's just that the structures that have existed in traditional education have stopped that natural process from happening because very often marginalized folks have been sealed away from their voice. And so I think there's kind of this feeling that, oh my gosh, if we suddenly talk about it, then there's going to be this big uproar, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, text to self-connection, we know that's a standard That's a standard in practically every single year of literacy, like text to self-connection. We're, we've always been teaching students to connect what they read to who they are. The question is, how have we been teaching that? And how have we been providing the resources from a very young age for students to expect that? To me, the word connect is really important. I think that identify with, I obviously would use that with, with older students, but I think just the word connection allows students, and you might say you know, to a student, how do you connect with this book? How do you connect with this author? And something, if you're just starting out, they might say, oh, well, this author wrote about dogs and I like dogs. Fine, that's fine. And I think that sometimes as educators, we want to have these deeper conversations around more what we would consider meatier issues of identity. But if a student is connecting themselves with a shared love of dogs, then that's fine because that means that they're taking control. They're taking the initiative over building that connection. And later on, me as a teacher, I can, you know, do a read aloud and I can talk about how, for me, when I read, you know, a book by Alan Say, that the themes from this book, being Asian American and the themes of being, you know, Asian American and that, uh, that connection between Japan and the United States, that's something that for me, I really connect with. And I can start to get into my own cultures. I can start to get into my own racial mix and my own background. And I don't have to necessarily say, okay, students, what about you? Talk about how your race connects with the book that you've read. Oh, I don't have to do that. In fact, I can just let that be and let that simmer. And sometimes kids will feel ready in that moment to raise their hand and say, oh, this reminds me of the book that I read. You know, Vanessa Brantley Newton, she's, she's somebody who I identify with because X, Y, and Z. But they might not be. And that's okay. Letting that simmer, I think, as you mentioned, sometimes just letting that seed plant for a number of years, it might come out in three years. So I think that's the thing about the seeds that we plant with identity work is that we don't, we should not expect them to bloom right away. And if we do, we're going to end up yanking out the stems. Instead, I would say it's about planting those seeds and trusting that in inside an inclusive environment where students are empowered to develop their identities on their own timelines, that they will do it. 
if they're given that power, but as I said, on their own timelines. I wanted to ask, I know we're almost out of time, but I'm just wondering, how do you find the time, in addition to being a full-time classroom teacher, to really do all of this amazing work? It's phenomenal. And can you tell our listeners ways that they can continue to reach out to you and find out more information about all the amazing work that you do? Because it's incredible. I don't know when you sleep. Oh, thank you. Obviously, I, I think for me, it's finding the balance is tough. I know as an educator, I think all of us educators know that this is more than a full-time job. And so I think that I've struggled. I struggled with finding a balance between, for me, maintaining my status quo and keeping my head above water and trying to push things forward in a way that I think is meaningful. And there have been times where I've tried to push things too much in my own practice or in my own institution. I needed to reel things back. There's times where I felt like I'm kind of stuck and I need to spark something inside myself. I think for me, the most important is knowing that every single day I go to work and I teach students that that's just moving things a bit forward, that I'm trying, I'm not trying to move mountains. Obviously, I am grateful for all of you and anybody who's willing to listen to my rambling. And, and my hope is that that actually makes a difference as well. But I know that the work that I do every single day when I get up in the morning and try my best, as we all are, to make experiences that are meaningful for students. To me, that's the meat of what I do. And I try to make it as identity affirming as I can. And I know that I fail. I know that I don't do as good a job as I could. And I know that I have to reflect a lot on some things that I do. And I look back, you know, I look back 10 years ago to some of the practices that I used and some of the things that I did with students. And I just facepalm because some of this stuff is stuff that I would never do now. But perhaps that's the educator experience. So I don't know if I have any recommendations, just shared commiseration. I appreciate your honesty and sincerity because I think we've all been there. And that's so sincere and real. Speaks to me. Mike, you, are we all set? Yeah, we're all out of time. I'm Daniel. I would certainly like to say that I admire the work that you do. Your flowers now. You're absolutely passionate in the work that you do. And please continue on to teaching our little ones who exactly they are so that they can uh, maneuver the world accordingly. As we wrap up this episode with Daniel, it's clear that our learners' identities are complex and multidimensional. The strategies and structures that he has shared with us today will help us empower our learners and construct their own identities and develop a deep respect for identities of others. We hope that this episode has inspired you to reflect on how to create a more inclusive and equitable learning environment for others. Join us in our next episode, where we will continue to explore more ways to improve the education experience for all. Until next time, fellow educators. Bye-bye.